Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Show. I have Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com joining me. Howdy, Eric. How you doing? Howdy, Brian. Good. Glad to be back. Can't see much out my window, but I'm, I'm here. I would trade you weather. You were telling me you look a little bit more like the, uh, the, the Scottish Highlands, and, and I'm, feeling, <clears throat> I'm feeling the heat of the summer. I'd, I'd trade you in a heartbeat. Yeah, well, we had that until just the other day, but um, the fog rolled in last night, and we get that fairly often. In fact, uh, the term highland uh, is apt. Uh, the area was settled by uh, Scottish people back in the 1600s and 1700s, and, and, and so it's, it's appropriate. You can, you can put on your kilt and go outside and pretend you're Braveheart. <laughs> just remember, there can only be one. <laughs> Never forget. Right. <laughs> right. So I, I was looking at your website and uh, saw a recent article you had published about Don't Speed in Indiana. And, of course, mm-hmm. the, the title caught my attention, but um, you, you use that title to, to bring up a topic that goes far beyond speeding that uh, can affect mm-hmm. anybody in any state. Let's talk a little bit about this. Well, it's the issue of civil asset forfeiture, which some listeners may not be familiar with, but it's a mechanism that is used by, uh, by various states, most states, in fact, ever since the 80s as part of the war on drugs, to sort of pile on the punishment extrajudicially. Uh, if you are caught, let's say, with, uh, with drugs, uh, in addition to whatever the punishment is for having the drugs, they will seize your vehicle or seize your house. And the crazy thing is you don't have to be convicted of an actual crime because it's a civil proceeding, and they can still take that property and keep it. Uh, there's a process under which you uh, can attempt to recover your property by attempting to prove that you're not guilty, but it totally reverses the whole innocent until proved guilty thing, uh, which is really nutty. And now Indiana is actually arguing, uh, they've got their chief solicitor before the Supreme Court, and he's arguing that in principle, uh, Indiana could seize your vehicle for infractions, not even crimes, such as speeding. They, they actually literally claim that they have the right, uh, in principle, to seize your vehicle for the, the most minor thing, like a, a five miles an hour over the speed limit. It's not a joke. It's absolutely for real. Okay, now, some people, I know the law and order types are thinking, well, don't speed and you'll, you won't have a problem. Mm-hmm. Help them understand the, the error in that kind of thinking. Well, as long as I just, you know, don't, uh, don't ever break the law, nothing like this could ever happen to me. Where are they missing well, the point? I, I mean, I'm almost speechless by that, I, even though I, I get what you're saying. Well, in Saudi Arabia, they cut people's hands off for stealing a piece of gum. Uh, there, there is an issue of proportionality to begin with, which uh, the Eighth Amendment uh, gets into. So you're going to you're going to take you're going to relieve somebody of potentially tens of thousands of dollars worth of their personal property over a trivial infraction. And I you know I use that term very specifically because we're not talking about criminal acts. We're talking about it's a it's a you know little regulation. It's a technicality. You drove 38 in a 35, and for that they're going to take potentially thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars uh, of your property and see you later uh, and, and people don't see anything wrong with that right well and and i 
a friend of mine, Connor Boyack, who is the, the president of Libertas Institute, which is a, a free market and uh, limited government uh, think tank here in Utah. Mm-hmm. They have worked very tirelessly to, to help rein in this practice of asset forfeiture. I saw some facts that he had posted the other day about the, the average amount of money taken. Because, look, law enforcement will argue, well, this is a tool we need to take down these uh, Mexican mm-hmm. cartel kingpins and so forth. Mm-hmm. The average amount they take, though, is is a thousand bucks or less. How much do you suppose it costs to hire a lawyer to go represent you to get back your thousand dollars or less? Of course, not to mention the the key element here is that you are supposed to be presumed innocent of a crime until you're proved guilty of it. And punishment, regardless of the nature of the punishment, whether it's jail or a fine, uh, is only supposed to be levied upon conviction and after due process of law. That's really the issue here. Uh, people are being deprived of their property without any due process of law, simply by the, the government asserting that it thinks you may have done something illegal and we're just going to take your stuff. And you know now you can try to prove that uh, your stuff wasn't related in some way to a criminal act, but it's, it's going to be up to us to decide whether you make the good case or not. That's 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 profound. I can't think of anything more profoundly un-American than that. Well, and, and you mentioned in the case of Indiana, their state solicitor general uh, tried to make the case that no, we we would uh, we'd be totally okay with a, say taking somebody's Bugatti because they were mm-hmm, going sure. five over the speed limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in other words, limitless, uh, completely. Any any sense of proportionality is tossed out the window, along with due process. Uh, so that for the most trivial of offenses, uh, the most extreme sanctions uh, are now to be imposed. And that's the sort of thing that you heard about in the old Soviet Union, where they would uh, send a guy off to Siberia for 25 years uh, you know, during the dekulakization because he attempted to save a handful of grain to feed his family. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. So is there any progress being made in terms of uh, limiting government or limiting this aspect of of government's appetite for other people's stuff is there any well, good yeah, news actually there was there was a the supreme court decided in this very case it's called uh, Tim's versus Indiana uh the, the Tim's guy uh had um, gotten in trouble over possession of drugs and at the time he was uh caught with these drugs he happened to be driving a Land Rover SUV now he bought this Land Rover SUV with money that he got from his father's uh life insurance policy so there was no question that the the vehicle was not gotten uh, as a result of illicit money or illegal activity nonetheless Indiana, uh, in addition to punishing him for the possession of the drugs, uh, seized his vehicle. And he appealed that with the Institute for Justice, providing some legal help. And last fall, the Supreme Court actually slapped Indiana down. It was a landmark victory uh, against this uh, the civil asset forfeiture stuff. But now Indiana is back, and they're attempting to argue, this is the whole gist of my article, uh, that they can do this stuff and that it's legitimate and that they have every right uh, not only to seize vehicles and other things like cash uh, in the case of a criminal proceeding, but also over things like speeding tickets. And if they can do that, it seems to me they could certainly claim that uh, they could seize your wallet for jaywalk uh, and for a variety of other infractions as well. Yeah, like you said, it's it's limitless, you know, uh, disorderly conduct. Hand over your keys. Sure. <laughs> okay. Sure. Tell me, tell me the downside of allowing law enforcement to to have any incentive whatsoever to start taking things from people. 
Well, the whole point, first of all, I, wouldn't, I don't like that term law enforcement. Uh, they enforced laws in Soviet Russia. They enforced laws in Nazi Germany. We used to have peacekeepers. I, mm-hmm. I prefer that idea. Uh, and peacekeepers are supposed to be about keeping the peace and protecting people's rights. They're not supposed to be incentivized to collect money. Uh, you know, everybody talks about radar traps and, and, and about, uh, you know, cops just out there to make their quota. And it's a very cynical and it's a very corrosive to the social fabric thing to, um, to have this idea. And it's a, it's, a, it's a valid idea that these police, you know, despite all of their talk, that they're out there to collect money from us under pretexts. That is profoundly dangerous to a free society when that starts to happen. You end up, in, you end up with these third world banana republic kinds of systems where everybody knows the whole system is thoroughly corrupt and it's all about the money and it's got nothing to do with, with keeping people safe. Well, and I, you probably saw this uh, a couple years back on one of the TV news magazines, 2020 or something like this, about uh, this practice being so bad in parts of Tennessee, you literally had cops jockeying to pull over somebody, you know, a sheriff's deputy stops somebody going down the freeway and a state trooper swoops in and cuts in front of him because he wants to make that, uh, he wants to make the, the bust or he wants to confiscate whatever he can find. Sure. Uh, in my state of Virginia, um, for a period of about two or three years, uh, a, a delegate succeeded in getting a law passed that imposed what they called abuser fines uh, for relatively minor traffic offenses that, that were in the range of $1,000, $1,500, $3,000 or more. It was, again, grossly disproportionate, egregiously unfair, and clearly uh, it was put in place just to, to milk money from people sort of ex officio, uh, you know, rather than pass a formal tax uh, which might uh, cause problems for politicians at election time, uh, they just pass these forms of unofficial taxes that raise the money disproportionately from people over these, these often trumped up and certainly hyper-exaggerated offenses. Well, and as, as you point out in your article, it, it, it comes back to, to there's a principle at stake here. Um, most police officers, if not all, among their oath of service, they're swearing allegiance to the Constitution to uphold it. And this flies in the face of the principle of you don't take something from somebody until they have been given due process and duly convicted you know, of, of the crime they're accused of. Yeah, it's not just the Constitution. It's the entire canon of Western civilization. Uh, you know, the idea that you are to be presumed innocent and treated accordingly until uh, in a court you've had your day in court and you have been uh, given due process, you've been uh, given the opportunity to question your accusers, examine evidence, uh, and then, and only then, after a judge and a jury find you guilty based on evidence, only then uh, may the government legitimately apply punishment, whether it's jail or fine or any other such thing. Okay, we're going to take a real quick break. Eric Peters is with me this morning. We're, he is from ericpetersautos.com. You can check out his website. We're going to talk about some car stuff when we come back, and you're going to like it. I know you will because uh, I, think, uh, I think we all have a little need for speed down there deep in our hearts. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. 
And Eric, I'd love to get your take on on things relating to government acting in its proper limited role. But I also like to pick your brain on things related to cars. And for those who who really love automobiles and and would like to get a solid take on what's new or even uh, you know what just what's happening, you have a really great take. You were telling me there's some changes coming to the uh, to the Corvette. Is this pretty significant stuff? Oh, it's uh, it's epical. It's uh, it's something that the Corvette has never been, which is mid-engined. They're about to uh, take the engine, and instead of it being up front, ahead of the front axle, and in front of the driver, uh, the 2020 Corvette, which will be revealed in a few days officially, uh, is going to henceforth have its engine behind the driver and passenger, uh, and will be shaped in a way that is very, very, in my opinion, not Corvette. If I looked at that car from what I've seen, it looks a lot like a McLaren. Uh, it looks a lot like uh, a number of other uh, exotic European vehicles that just happens to have a Chevy badge on the fender. I'm not sure I like it. I grant that it's probably a better handling car, and I'm certain it's going to be a quicker car because it's more compact and lighter and more powerful. But is it a Corvette? In my opinion, not as much as it used to be. Well, let's talk about what makes a Corvette a Corvette. Well, Corvettes were historically always uh, very American cars. And one of the most defining things about them was that they had this big American V8 under that big, long hood. Uh, You could recognize one immediately. Even if you weren't a car person, everybody knew what a Corvette was. Just like everybody knows what a Volkswagen Beetle is and certain other cars like that. There are a handful of cars that are immediately recognizable as Corvettes. This new one, have a look at it. I've got pictures of it up on the site, and you can look all over the Internet and see them as well. Uh, And unless you knew it was a Corvette, I think that most people, especially non-car people, would have trouble identifying it as a Corvette. And that kind of makes me sad. I, I love the title, the Me Too Corvette, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and I, I admit it does. It, it looks uh, it's it's comparable to you know what uh, I don't know a, a Lamborghini or maybe a Ferrari or something like that would look like. Yeah, I, you know that's the whole design ethic now. Apparently, is. Uh, to compete directly with those cars rather than to have something different. So in other words, the, the car is uh, much more uh, homogenous and same-same. Uh, my, my sources tell me it will still have the, the traditional simple American V8, uh, which is unusual in an exotic car. And when I say simple, I mean that it, it doesn't have turbos. Uh, it does not have a four-valve overhead cam layout. It's a single, uh, single cam, two-valve pushrod engine, which... You know, that's technology that goes back to the 50s. Um, but, but Chevy has done a heck of a job producing tremendous, tremendous horsepower out of this relatively simple design. So that's good. But I don't know. The rest of the car leaves me a little bit flat. And I'll be interested to see whether I'm hounded out of town for my heretical views on the subject. <laughs> okay, so I have to ask you then. You know, I've, I, I've seen the classic Corvettes. I've, I've, I've not been a huge Corvette fan, but I have watched the progression of the Corvette styling change over the years. In your opinion, What's the, what's for the purest? What is the purest of the Corvette models? Uh, personally, I like what's styled. They, the, the term for it is the Mako Shark body that appeared in 1967 uh, and carried through until uh, 1982 when they shifted over to that uh, um, sort of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of the Back to the Future looking Corvette, yeah. the C5 generation, I think it was. Yeah. But that 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 very distinctive. Uh, um, 
look that the car had from the late 60s through the 70s and into the early 80s, that uh, that was, to me, the apotheosis of Corvette design. There was nothing else that looked like it. Uh, it was just so much a Corvette, and everything about it screamed America uh, rather than Europe or Japan, and that's what I liked about the car. No, I would, I would have to agree. Um, you know, there's, there's just something. Now, uh, performance-wise, that's probably another story. I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of advances. Uh, is it safe to say that the Corvettes of today uh, probably have more in common with supercars than, than the Corvettes of old? Oh, without question. In fact, a uh, little-known uh, historical footnote, uh, in the 70s and uh, the 60s, the Corvette was not the best-handling American car you could buy. Um, the Pontiac Trans Am actually was, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, I happen to own one. Uh, and I've driven a number of Corvettes in that period, and they really did not handle that well. But they were fun to drive in their own uh, in their own hairy way. They were they were much more difficult cars to drive than any modern Corvette because they had all this power and they had a not particularly great suspension, and it was easy to break the tail loose and 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 spin around. But that to me was part of the fun of the thing. It was a wild animal, you know. It was like uh, it was like jumping on a lion and hoping for the best. Well, as you mentioned, you know, the, the, the Trans Am was actually a better handling car. Um, mm-hmm. I actually had the chance to sit down a couple of days ago and, and watch uh, Smokey and the Bandit 2 with my kids. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, once again, you know, reminded, oh, yeah, there was a time where people actually cheered, you know, screeching tires and clouds of white smoke and, and, and defiance of uh, Sheriff Buford T. Justice. Yeah, yeah, Smokey was the hero. He wasn't the outlaw. Uh, I mean, the bandit was the hero. Today, if they if they produced a movie like that, there would probably be keening howls of outrage from concerned moms, and the the, the movie would have to be pulled from the theaters within forty eight hours. So, what will the what will this mid engine do to the price of the Corvette? Is that going to see a significant hike? Well, that's another thing. Now, uh, according to Chevy, uh, the price is not going to go through the stratosphere, but it's already pretty high. Uh, it's probably going to start around $60,000. So that's another point of departure uh, uh, now versus then. Corvettes have always been more expensive, but they were never orders of magnitude more expensive than other vehicles. You know, it was, it was, it was neat that Chevy, Chevy, you know, a bread-and-butter brand, was selling this car, the Corvette. But now it's kind of there's kind of a disconnect there because Chevy is still sort of a bread and butter brand, but the Corvette is an exotic, you know, a car that starts at sixty, probably with a few options it's going to be seventy, seventy five thousand dollars, and that puts it way out of the price range of almost everybody except the very affluent. Okay. Well, I can tell there's probably not going to be one on, on my uh, Christmas list anytime soon. But mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, I've watched the price of just about everything go up. And I'm thinking, was it you I was talking with about the $100,000 Chevy truck? Or did I just see an article on that in the last week or so? They're getting ready to cross the, the six-figure threshold. Oh, I'm not surprised by that at all, because I've had a number of, you know, in the last year, uh, I've test-driven all of the current 1500s, the half-tons. And the ones they send me are typically loaded up uh, crew cabs, and uh, all of them are, are you know sixty thousand dollar trucks, sixty thousand bucks for a half ton truck. Yeah, I mean, look, I paid a lot less than that for my first house, and it actually appreciated. Yeah. I, I yeah. paid, I think, I paid forty three five for my first home, and we sold it for somewhere north of sixty thousand. That's not going to happen with a vehicle. No, that's the very uh, financially daunting aspect of the, the rise in the prices of these vehicles, because as much as you pay for them, three or four years from now, uh, what you just bought will probably be worth 40 to 50 percent less than what you paid for it. But do they last longer? Are we getting, the, are we getting more bang for our buck? They used to. 
there was this automotive sweet spot that occurred, roughly speaking, in the late 90s, the early to mid-2000s, when all of the benefits of technology, and I mean the, the meaningful benefits to the car buyer, had resulted in vehicles that routinely went 150 to 200,000 miles without, um, without having major, major problems that required a lot of money uh, to fix. But cars in the last five years especially have become so complicated uh, that when something does go wrong down the road, when you're talking about you know five, six, seven years from now, when the car has lost half its value and you're faced with a potentially five or $6,000 repair, in some cases, it's, it's, it's not worth fixing and you end up throwing the car away. So we're, we're really reaching this, this odd nexus of disposability with vehicles uh, where you keep it and it's fine for a number of years and then you just throw it away and get another one. Well, there's a, there's a bunch of good old boys like to sit around at one of the local taco shops uh, and just you know do what good old boys do but these old guys they drive nice trucks one of them was asking the others i had to replace the the tailgate on my truck here anybody want to guess how much it cost and they kept guessing uh you know nine hundred thousand. it was upwards of like seven grand to replace yeah. a tailgate yeah and here's why uh probably it was a ford f-150 with an aluminum tailgate and even if it wasn't it it probably had uh a backup camera in it along uh. with uh, various sensors in it and other electronic things in it so that when that whole assembly has to be replaced, it will cost that kind of money to, to replace it. Whereas in the past, that was just a stamped steel piece of metal. That, that was it. It was the simplest thing imaginable. Uh, and, and it would cost next to nothing to replace something like that. All right. We are up against the clock here. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. This is why I want people to go to your website so they can pick your ample brain. Eric, thank you. We'll talk again next week. You bet, Brian. Looking forward to it. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. You are listening to the Loving Liberty Program. My name is Brian Hyde. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, if you want to join in the conversation, you can do that too, provided you're catching the live broadcast and not just the podcast. If you're catching the podcast, you can have a conversation with me, but it's, it's just not going to get through, that's all. If you want to call in, though, you can do so at 801-331-8113. Love to talk with you. Hey, on a car-related note, and, uh, you know, Eric has limited time. Eric Peters was with me in the last couple of segments. Um, I, this is one thing I really wish I could have bounced off of him just because I know he has a great love and appreciation for, for automotive, automotive classics. And I saw this article from the AP today. Not so sure about the headline, but here we go. From Nazis to hippies, it's the end of the road for the Volkswagen Beetle. Kind of ironic. I mean, I, every so often, I'll be driving down the road and I'll see a classic old Beetle. I'm not talking what about the new sleek, turbocharged, you know, TDI ones that uh, can get out there and, and run. But uh, the little air-cooled, you know, <laughs> you could replace the fan belt with a pair of pantyhose if you had to. And it just warms my heart to see that. This is what a lot of my friends drove growing up. You know, the really, the really lucky ones had them built up into kind of a Baja bug. But for just an utterly reliable, little, round, dependable, get-you-where-you-need-to-go kind of car, it's pretty hard to beat. The Volkswagen Beetle. Well, apparently the news out of Frankfurt, Germany, is that Volkswagen is halting the latest uh, pr the production of its last version of the Beetle model this week at uh, a plant in Puebla, Mexico. 
And this is the end of the road for a vehicle that has symbolized a lot of things over a history spanning eight decades. Can you believe that? It's uh, been a part of Nazis' darkest hours as a never-realized Nazi prestige project. I mean, if you if you watch some of the old World War II films, you'll notice that, uh, you know, Hitler and, and his dudes were tooling around in Volkswagen things. But, uh, yeah, Volkswagen, the people's wagon, the people's car. And the Beetle was a, a good example of something that could that could reliably and simply get people around. I'd heard rumors to the effect that the Volkswagen Beetle floated. I don't know if that's true. I do know that my friend's brother drove one, and when they managed to flip it over in the Cottonwood Mall parking lot one day, uh, trying to do donuts or something, uh, his brother being a big guy, as were some of his friends, they just simply, you know, crawled out, flipped the car back over on its wheels, and drove it home. Really none the worse for the wear. You know, a few dings and scrapes. That's it. But apparently, the symbol of Germany's post-war economic renaissance and rising middle-class prosperity, the Volkswagen Beetle, is uh, something that has been sold. It's recognized all over the world. I mean, come on, Disney introduced us to Herbie, the love bug. It's one of the most recognizable designs out there. It's an absolute landmark, probably up there rivaling the the traditional Coca-Cola bottle that's so iconic. So here's a little bit of history on this car. The car's original design, a rounded silhouette with seating for four or five, a nearly vertical windshield and air-cooled engine in the rear, can be traced back to Austrian engineer Ferdinand Porsche, perhaps you've heard of him, (laughs) who was hired to fulfill German dictator Adolf Hitler's project for a people's car that would spread auto ownership the way that the Ford Model T had in the U.S. Now, aspects of the car bore similarities to the Tatra T97 made in Czechoslovakia in 1937, and his sketches by Hungarian engineer Bela Berenyi, published in 1934. Mass production of what was called the KDF Wagon, based on the acronym of Nazi labor organization under whose auspices it was to be sold, was canceled due to World War II. Instead, the massive new plant in what was then the countryside east of Hanover turned out military vehicles using forced laborers from all over Europe under miserable conditions. Relaunched as a civilian car maker under the supervision of the British occupation authorities, the Volkswagen factory was transferred in 1949 to the German government and the state of Lower Saxony, which still owns part of the company. By 1955, the one millionth Beetle, officially called the Type 1, had rolled off the assembly line in what was now the town of Wolfsburg. Now, here's where the U.S. became Volkswagen's most important foreign market, peaking at 563,522 cars back in 1968. In other words, Americans bought up about 40% of production in that year. Unconventional, sometimes humorous advertising from agency Doyle Dane Burbach, Burnbach rather, uh, urged car buyers to think small. I think one of my favorites is the uh, television commercial of the, the funeral procession driving along. And you can see the people in the, you know, the limousine following the hearse and they're dabbing their eyes. And you're hearing the voice of the deceased recounting in his last will and testament to such and such who spent money like there was no tomorrow. I leave a dollar or I leave a calendar. (laughs) Anyway, very humorous. But at the end of the procession, I leave my entire $10 million fortune to my nephew, Ralston, who understood the value of a dollar. And here's Ralston tooling along in his little Volkswagen Beetle. Brilliant, brilliant advertising. 
Now, Bernard Riger in his 2013 history of the people's car said, unlike in West Germany, where the low price, quality and durability stood for a new post-war normality in the U.S., the Beatles characteristics landed a profoundly unconventional air in a car culture dominated by size and showmanship. And you think about that. What were the cars of the 60s like? Yeah, massive land yachts. I mean, th- to this day, you see them and you think, how on earth did they ever drive, much less parallel park something like that? And then here comes the little Volkswagen. Well, production at Wolfsburg ended in 1978 as newer front-wheel drive models like the Golf took over, but the Beetle wasn't dead yet. Production went on in Mexico from 1967 until 2003, longer than the car had been made in Germany. Nicknamed the Vochito, the car made itself at home as a rugged Mexican-made, I'm going to say it wrong here, Carro de Pueblo. The new Beetle, a completely retro version built on a modified golf platform, resurrected some of the old Beetle's cute, unconventional aura in 1998 under CEO Ferdinand Pietsch, Ferdinand Porsche's grandson. In 2012, the Beatles' design was made a little bit sleeker. The last of the 5,961 final edition versions is headed to a museum after ceremonies in Puebla July 10th to mark the end of production. Remember how exciting people or how excited people were when the Volkswagen Beetle was was brought back into new production. And while I'll, I'll confess, I I always kind of viewed them as a chick car. I never felt like a confident heterosexual male would be uh, found driving one of the newer Beetles, although there may be some exceptions, so no offense intended here. Um, You know, it it was a great way for young, upwardly mobile women to to have a very powerful statement of who they were and drive around in something trendy. And, and, And the best part of all was those cars were built well. Now, full disclosure here, I am a Volkswagen owner. No, I don't have a Beetle. Um, I drive a, a Tiguan. But I've been pretty impressed with the, with the workmanship. And I still have that little lingering pang of jealousy for all my friends back in school who got their hands on a Volkswagen Beetle and drove them till the wheels fell off. It still warms my heart to this day to see the occasional Beetle, you know, trundling on by even though i don't know what the top speed is on these i i I dated a girl briefly right after high school who had a volkswagen beetle and um, the thing i remember was the car absolutely was reliable it never failed to start i can think of some other cars that did have that problem but uh, it seems like the top speed was maybe 55 miles an hour with a tailwind and, and a little bit of a downhill slope. Now, that could be my imagination. Who knows? Maybe those little beetles were capable of going a little bit faster, but um, it was tremendously underpowered. But, hey, from a gas economy or fuel economy standpoint, that was actually a good thing, especially, you know, if you if you had five bucks to put in your car, that was enough to get you around for the week and, and probably more, you know, with gas at about a buck a gallon or a little bit less. So mark this day, the end of the era of the Volkswagen Beetle. I'm still just a little bit geeked out that it goes back nearly 80 years. Well, actually a little bit more than 80 years. 1938. And with everything else that has been, you know, uh, sent down the memory hole because of its uh, either real or putative association with uh, Adolf Hitler. The Beetle is one of those little symbols that uh, nonetheless endured. Whatever grudge people had about uh, the awful things that Hitler did, it didn't carry over 
into the Volkswagen and particularly for the Beetle. By the way, I think I'd put most of the credit for that love at the feet of uh, number 51, Herbie, the love bug, and the Walt Disney franchise that uh, showed us what uh, what an adorable and, and valuable part of society a uh, self-aware Volkswagen Beetle could be. But I still would like somebody to answer the question for me. Did those dang things float or not? Because I don't know. And I, believe me, I, I wouldn't have the courage to go float, drive one out into a lake or off a bridge just to see. I wouldn't even encourage a friend to do that. But if somebody can answer that question for me, I'd, I'd love to put that one to rest. Got to take a break. We'll be back here in just a moment. 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right, so I'm still watching with a, a little bit of trepidation and uh, and very keen interest some of the developments happening uh, with Iran and the United States. And, and you know, I've, I've had a couple of people say, "What what is this commie pinko line you're taking that, uh, you know, somehow the United States may not be the good guy in the white hat in this situation? And, and by the way, the new buzzword, or at least the new buzz phrase, is, well, Iran, in defiance of the agreement, is now enriching more uranium. In fact, they, they're saying that they're going to break the agreement. And, and the conclusion that you and I are being told to come to, the, the conclusion that we're being led towards is, well, there's only one reason why they might be in, in uh, upping their enrichment or continuing their enrichment of uranium, and that is to build a bomb to use against all of us. Okay, now I'm not a nuclear physicist, okay? So I, this, this is not even an area where my brain can crawl, much less run swiftly. But I think it's a little more complicated than, well, my gosh, they're going to build a bomb and then and everybody who, uh, who doubted them is going to regret it. I think what's happened is there was an agreement which the U.S., was part of, for some inexplicable reason, I don't know why uh, the U.S. government had to, to be uh, right in the middle of this agreement that uh, Iran had made with uh, the U.S. and several European nations as well. But the U.S. broke the deal. Iran was still abiding by the deal, and then uh, finally, in response to sanctions, in response to the Brits seizing one of their oil tankers, which they did, by the way, just uh, last week, Iran said, okay, fine, no agreement, no agreement. We'll get back to enriching. Now, if your immediate responses, if your immediate conclusion, you come to, well, they must be doing it because they want to wipe Israel off the map. You're watching too much TV or you're listening to too much mainstream media. Maybe it's just they realize, look, we're being put into a no-win situation and, and, and I'm just asking the possibility, is there, is there any possible use, for instance, a uh, nuclear power plant that could benefit from the enrichment that they're doing? Because, as I understand it, they don't have 
the technology to do the kind of uh, heavy-duty enrichment or the quantity of heavy-duty uh, of uranium to enrich in that fashion to, to be building into a nuclear device. And then you have the matter of the, there are a number of leaders from the Iranian government coming right out and saying, look, we don't want war with any nation. But they're certainly being backed into a corner and they're certainly being prodded and they're certainly being swatted. Let me ask you this. If you if you stand around and you whack on a hornet's nest with a stick. Does it mean that to the hornets are wrong when you end up getting stung? If you chose to stand there whacking on it with a stick. Ron Paul has an article on Lou Rockwell today. This is worth sharing. It's called Frog Marching Trump Toward War on Iran. Now, before I share this article, I want to tell you something. I, I actually have been very pleasantly surprised, despite his uh, sometimes bellicose you know, persona. Trump has actually been pretty restrained. And, and I, in my estimation, he's been pretty reluctant to just simply jump at the chance to use military force. Now, he is surrounded by a bunch of neoconservative advisors, John Bolton among them, who really believe that it is our duty to go reshape the world by force. There is no conflict that they wouldn't shy away from because they believe the, you know, the golden rule is do unto others before they can do unto you. They don't see the, the whole cycle of blowback. They don't see the whole idea that, you know, Leave people alone, mind your own business, have a strong defense, but don't go out there and tell the world, you know, you're going to rule it by force. Anyway, Trump has seemed to resist this for the most part, but there, there are great concerns he's being backed into a corner by his advisors. Ron Paul says hypocrisy seems to become a defining characteristic of U.S. foreign policy, especially when it comes to Iran. After breaking the Iran deal last year and de facto forcing the Europeans to violate the deal in May, the U.S. administration is now complaining that, hey, Iran's no longer abiding by its obligations under the deal. That's a good point, by the way. Ron Paul says it's remarkable to see Secretary of State Mike Pompeo take to Twitter to complain of Iran enriching uranium to pre-deal levels as if somehow the U.S. believes it can still dictate the terms of a deal to which it is no longer a party. He says this latest neocon push for U.S. war on Iran started last week when Iran exceeded the limit of a 300 kilogram stockpile of low enriched uranium. Now, as usual, the media only reported part of the story. One reason Iran went over the limit was that the countries to which Iran was exporting its excess uranium were notified by the U.S. in early May that they would face U.S. sanctions if they continued taking uranium off or the uranium off the Iranians' hands. Yeah, I don't remember hearing the press talk about this. The U.S. created the crisis, says Ron Paul, by preventing Iran from exporting its excess uranium and then pointed to the expanding uranium stockpile enriched to 3.6% as proof that Iran is about to launch a nuclear weapon. Now, Ron Paul says, make no mistake about it. Trump's neocons are determined to trap him into a massive, disastrous war with Iran. And they're using the same tactics they used to hoodwink George W. Bush into a multi-trillion dollar war on Iraq that could not have attacked us if it wanted to. 
Secretary Pompeo tweeted yesterday the exact kind of dishonest hysterics used to terrify many Americans into supporting an Iraq attack 13 years ago. Quote, Iran's regime armed with nuclear weapons would pose an even greater danger to the world. End quote. Now, as the former head of the CIA, Ron Paul points out that Shirley Pompeo knows that his own agency had determined back in 2003 that Iran had abandoned its nuclear weapons program. And that every U.S. intelligence assessment since then has concurred with that conclusion. But then again, he did brag recently about his excellent ability to lie, cheat and steal. And though the Europeans promised Iran that they would continue to honor the deal, they've proven themselves unable to put forth a credible alternative to the U.S.-dominated SWIFT system, meaning no trade in Iran's number one export, oil. Iran responded over the weekend to European fecklessness by announcing they would begin enriching uranium up to 5%, which is a level needed to run one of its nuclear power generating plants. As could be predicted... This move, which is allowed according to Section 36 of the Iran deal, is now being treated as the equivalent of Saddam's mobile chemical weapons labs. Ron Paul points out the Iranians are not backing down. They rightly feel cheated as they continue to honor the deal even as the U.S. reimposed. Rather, they continued to honor the deal even as the U.S. reimposed crippling sanctions meant to destroy their economy and starve their people. So where does that leave us? Well, Ron Paul sums it up like this. He says President Trump has a very serious decision to make. He is being frog-marched into war by his neocons and his Middle East partners. He has very little time left to change course. If the neocons are not swept out immediately, he is risking both his second term and his legacy. I don't know why this, this resonates so strongly with me. But if there were one area that I would want to persuade people, I would hope to persuade people to think more deeply and, and to try to see as clearly and independently as you can, this would be that area. And it's not because I have any kind of fealty to Donald Trump. I, you know, I'm grateful he's the president and not Hillary Clinton. But I don't believe that he is the solution to all of our problems. And for everybody who has this uh, idea in their head that, well, you know, Trump's got the reelection wrapped up. He's going to he is going to be a shoe in for reelection. Granted, you know, with with a lot of the things that he's done, with the promises he has kept and just his defiance of the Democrat slash Republican establishment, I think he actually stands a very good chance of a landslide reelection. But I agree with Ron Paul. If you want to see that go right down the drain. Start another war. Get us embroiled in a larger, broader Middle East war that not only will take valuable American lives and and billions of American dollars fed into a wood chipper. But will very likely crash the world economy. Because when things get hot there in the Persian Gulf, it's going to make it a lot more difficult for those who are trafficking, you know, oil. To, to make that uh, journey through the Strait of Hormuz. I'm not trying to pin this necessarily on, you know, this is our economic hopes that we're trying to, to defend here. There's a moral component that I think is much more important. But the bottom line is, 
If you hate your enemies more than you love your liberty, you're going to pay a terrible price in the end. Let's not make that mistake. Please, let's not make that mistake. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 